Our Father and God in heaven, Father, we are in need of your Holy Spirit here today. And so, Father, I ask that you subdue me behind your Son's cross. And Father, may none of me be manifested and all of your Son be reflected from the sacred desk. And so, Father, we ask for the power of the Holy Spirit here in a mighty way to bless your people. Father, in spite of myself, may your people be thoroughly blessed and encouraged and stirred to do the great work in the little time that we have. And Father, as we study this all-important subject, shaken but not stirred, may we be encouraged that your Son has already paved the way for us for victory through this crisis hour. This we pray in Christ's name. The Bible says concerning the 144,000, these are they which follow the Lamb wherever He goest. And so the 144,000 follow Jesus wherever He goest. We know from Revelation chapter 7 that the 144,000 comes out of great tribulation. And that great tribulation could be found in Matthew 24 where Jesus gives an exposition of last day events that there will be a great tribulation that was never known in the history of the world. And so the 144,000 comes out of this experience of great tribulation and they follow Jesus wherever he goes. So how do they follow the Lamb wherever he goes? Notice what the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. What is the pattern of the 144,000 following the Lamb wherever he goest? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. And when you're there, please say amen. amen. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, for even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. So, what is the example that Christ gave for us in his? What is the example in his suffering that we should follow his steps? Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. And we find that in Revelation 14, verse 5 and 6, that the 144,000 has no guile in their mouth and they are faultless in the throne of God. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. And so, Christ gave a pattern of his suffering and we see that pattern of suffering in the example in the closing scenes of his life from Gethsemane to the cross. That's why Ellen White writes in Desire of Ages, page 83, paragraph 4, it would do well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant, our love will be quickened, and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. Amen. 
And so Ellen White tells us one hour each day to contemplate the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. You know, we could watch four hours of television at a time. For those that like professional sports, we'd even wish the games to go overtime. But Christ is asking just one hour each night to meditate about the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. Now, where does the closing scenes begin? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 31, Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. We've established from various texts and before in the previous presentations, that night represents a time of trouble. Terror by night. It's the 91 division of Psalms. And also, as Jesus approached those closing scenes, he was going to Gethsemane. In Desire of Ages, page 685, paragraph 2, it states this. Jesus had been earnestly conversing with his disciples and instructing them, but as he neared Gethsemane, he became strangely silent. He had often visited this spot for meditation and prayer, but never with a heart so full of sorrow as upon this night of his last agony. We've established in the previous presentation that Jesus realized that his church will reject him, that his disciples will forsake him, that all those he labored for earnestly with love, that he healed, that he guided, he preached to, will be forsaking him in the crisis hour, and he was sighing and crying for the condition of the church. So too in the last days, according to Ezekiel chapter 9, those that will be sealed will be sighing and crying for the condition of the church. That's why the Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 3, He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, in the Gethsemane account in Matthew 26, we have found that when Christ was praying and he came back to his three closest disciples, Peter, James, and John, what were they doing? They were sleeping. And those sleeping disciples represent something very important here in the last days. Volume 2 of the Testimonies, page 205, paragraph 1. But these sleeping disciples represented a sleeping church when the day of God's visitation is nigh it is a time of clouds and thick darkness when to be found asleep is most perilous and so the disciples sleeping represents the sleeping Laodicean church here at this present hour and even though his disciples were asleep Jesus still prayed Jesus prayed the prayer, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. Jesus, in his humanity, did not want to be rejected. It is natural for us to be liked by people, amen? We like to be liked. But the Bible says there's going to come a time when we'll be hated of all men. And so Jesus, in his humanity, knew that he will be ridiculed and get the most worst death possible in the Roman Empire. His own church is going to reject him, and 
Jesus said, although I don't want to go through this, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. You see, in the last days, every earthly support is going to be cut off of God's people. God's people, God's remnant church, those that will remain true and faithful to the end, will be hated worldwide. There will be a death decree passed, and, and governments will seek to wipe out Seventh-day Adventists and it is a fearful time, and we realize that time is coming soon, but we must pray the prayer, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will. And when Jesus prayed that prayer, notice what God did for him, Luke 22. Luke 22. Even the midst of the sleeping disciples, even the midst of knowing that he's going to die the most cruelest death, what did God do for Jesus? In Luke 22, verse 43, when you're there, please say amen. amen. Luke 22, verse 43. And the Bible says in Luke 22, verse 43, And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Amen. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, and the sweat was as were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. So when Jesus was agonizing, Father, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. An angel came to strengthen him. You see, it's an interesting repeated pattern. After Christ ascended to heaven, in Acts chapter 1, the disciples were in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. They were praying. They were confessing. They wanted to be in one accord in one place. They put away all their differences. No longer did Peter, James, and John vie for a superior position. They all wanted to be unified in the faith. And we know the account as they prayed, God outpoured the early reign of the Holy Spirit with power. In Acts chapter 3, they were empowered to preach the gospel message where 3,000 were baptized in a day. In Acts chapter 8, this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this outpouring of power of help of on up on high, the comforter which is the Holy Spirit to help us in our time of need, that allowed the disciples to stand a great persecution in Acts chapter 8 where many of God's followers, with the exception of the apostles, scattered and fled all throughout Judea. And that scattering because of the persecution allowed the gospel to be preached in all the world. So too in the last days, there's going to be a latter rain, a help on high. And those who pray and sigh and cry for the abominations of the, of the land, those that will say, Father, not my will, but thy will. The latter rain's going to pour down, and God's people in the last days will preach, like in the days of Pentecost, a revival of primitive godliness not seen since apostolic times will come again, and in a period of persecution, the gospel will be preached to all the world, and the end shall come. You see, we have a misinterpretation of Matthew 24, 14 about this gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then shall the end come. 
Some people think, oh, okay, we need to just go on satellites and we need to put all these radios and MP3s and, and, and go on mission trips. That's all good, and we should do that. Amen. Amen. But the gospel that we preach in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end shall come, if you look at Matthew 24, comes in a period of great persecution. And so not only are we to declare through proper theology that we are preaching this truth-filled three angels' messages, but we are preaching the message through our lifestyle in the midst of persecution. Amen. Inspiration writes that the greatest argument of being a Christian is a loving and lovable Christian. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, many will have those glow tracks when the crisis hours happens. Many of them will have the literature of the literature evangelists that will be passed out. All the arguments will be settled, but when the people all around the world see the character of God manifested in God's people in the crisis hour, that will be the conviction that says, I need to follow God and keep that Sabbath. Amen. Amen. You see, our problem right now, the reason why we don't have success as we should, is because we preach the truth-filled message in the pulpits, but our actions outside the pulpit woe is me as a speaker, is contradictory to what we preach. You see, in the last days, God is going to also send an angel to empower this message. Just like the angel was sent to Jesus as the crisis hour began to empower him, there is going to be an angel. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 18. Revelation 18. Revelation chapter 18, verse 1. Revelation 18, verse 1, and when you're there, please say amen. Amen. And the apostle John writes, and after these things, now notice, he says, after these things. You see, Revelation 18 precedes Revelation 17. In Revelation 17, John sees this image of this prostitute, this whore of Babylon. Or in modern terms, she might look like a video girl. We want to modernize it for the young people. And so this woman will be riding this beast, and the Bible says that she is drunken with the cup of the blood of the martyrs of the saints. So in other words, this persecuting power is going to regain its power since before the Dark Ages and reinstitute persecution, and it's a parallel of Matthew 24. And the Bible says, after these things of the rise of Babylon, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And so just like an angel came down to Jesus as he was in his Gethsemane experience, so too an angel will come down to empower God's people to preach that gospel message to swell into a loud cry. Now, this angel came down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with his glory. So this great power is going to lighten the whole world, it's a worldwide message, with his glory. What is his power? Notice what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. What is this power? Romans chapter 1, verse 16. 
The Bible says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So that great power is the gospel message that will go to the whole earth. So this worldwide message is this gospel message will, that will go with power. Now it says the angel will light it with his glory. What does light represent? Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You see, the Bible interprets itself. That's why we go from text to text. So if we have questions of what this means, we could go to another text from another prophet because the Bible is a cohesive document where one prophet can answer the question of another prophet. That's why we compare text to text. Because it's an interlocking chain. Notice what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. The Bible says, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness have shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So what lightens the world is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, we reflect the character of of Jesus. Amen. What does the glory represent? Remember, Moses in Exodus 33 verse 18 asked God, show me thy glory. And, and God said, I will pass by my goodness and my mercy. And when God passed by Moses, Moses declared the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. So Moses described in Exodus 34 verse 6 that the glory of God is merciful, gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth. Now what is that descriptions of? Character. And so this gospel message that the angel will empower will be the reproduction of of God's character in man in the crisis hour, in the darkest moments of earth's history, the light of the shining of the life of Jesus will be replicated in his people. And that's what God's desiring to do for you and I. I want to read to you from early writings, page 270. Inspiration writes, Said the angel, Look ye, My attention was then turned to the company I had seen who were mightily shaken. I was shown those whom I had before seen weeping and praying in agony of spirit. Remember, Christ was in sorrow and was praying. We are to sigh and cry for the abominations and the desolations of the land. These people were weeping and praying in agony of spirit. The company of guardian angels around them had been doubled, and they were clothed with an armor from their head to their feet. They moved in exact order like a company of soldiers. 
Their countenances expressed the severe conflict which they had endured, the agonizing struggle they had passed through, yet their features marked with severe internal anguish, now shone with the light and glory of heaven. They had obtained the victory, and it called forth from them the deepest gratitude and holy, sacred joy. And so, those that will be sighing and crying and be sorrowing for souls that will be lost, not condemning, but have genuinely sorrow, weeping for those that are going to be lost in this crisis hour, God will imbue them with his spirit in a marked manner. So now when Jesus finished praying in Gethsemane, what happened to him? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 46. In fact, let's go to verse 45. The Bible says, Then cometh he, that's Jesus, to his disciples, and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Behold, he is at hand that doth betray me. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came and with him a great multitude with swords and staves from the chief priests, the elders of the people. Now he that betrayed him gave them a sign, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, that same as he, hold him fast. And so, one of Jesus' disciples comes in the scene and betrays Jesus. Now, we look to Judas in vile eyes. Amen? He's like the ultimate villain, isn't he? He is just this bad, evil person that had no good qualities in him. But do you know, as I read the life of Judas and the Desire of Ages, that all of us have the potential to be a Judas? I want to read to you. Desire of Ages, page 716, paragraph 4. Judas saw the sick, the lame, the blind, flock to Jesus from the towns and cities. He saw the dying laid at his feet. He witnessed the Savior's mighty works in healing the sick, casting out devils, and raising the dead. He felt in his own person the evidence of Christ's power. He recognized the teaching of Christ as superior to all that he had ever heard. He loved the great teacher. It says that Judas loved Jesus, and he desired to be with him. And in Desire of Ages, page 17, paragraph 1, Judas was highly regarded by the disciples and had great influence over them. Not only was Judas described as one that loved Jesus, that saw the great works of Jesus, but the disciples also loved Judas. Judas was one of great talent and great education. But what was Judas's problem? Desire of Ages, page 716, paragraph 4. But Judas did not come to the point of surrendering himself fully to Christ. 
he did not give up his worldly ambition or his love of money. While he accepted the position of a minister of Christ, he did not bring himself under the divine molding. He felt that he could retain his own judgment and opinions, and he cultivated a disposition to criticize and accuse. So one cherished sin, which in Judas's case was the love of money. He preached with power. He saw the evidences of Christ being the Messiah. He saw all the great manifestations of Christ. We may have gone to the mission trips. We might have seen thousands baptized. We might have knocked on doors and given Bible studies. But if we have that one cherished sin, we can very much be like Judas. And how is this manifested? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, starting in verse 14. How is the love of money manifested? Matthew 26, verse 14, the Bible says, Then one of the twelve called Judas Iscariot went unto the chief priests and said unto them, What will ye give me, and I will deliver him unto you? And they covenanted with him for thirty pieces of silver, and from that time he sought opportunity to betray him, which is Jesus. You see, the greatest threat for many Seventh-day Adventists is not alcohol. The greatest threat of many Seventh-day Adventists that love the Bible, that love the spirit of prophecy, is not the clubs, it's not the, the, the television shows, but it is something very, very insidious and subtle. Luke chapter 8, verse 14, the Bible says, And they that which fell among thorns, and they which they have heard, go forth and choke with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. You see, Judas was concerned with the cares of this life. He wanted status. He wanted that money. And because of that avarice, that caused him to betray Jesus. Now, how does this apply to us in the last days? I'm reading from the Spalding and McGann collection, page one, paragraph five. I saw the nominal church and nominal Adventists, like Judas, would betray us to the Catholics to obtain their influence to come against the truth. The saints then will be an obscure people, little known to the Catholics, but the church and nominal Adventists who know of our faith and customs. For they hated us on the account of the Sabbath, for they could not refute it, will betray the saints and report them to the Catholics as those who disregard the institutions of the people, that is, that they keep the Sabbath and disregard Sunday. So inspiration says in the last days, nominal Adventists, will be as Judas betraying the true and faithful. And why are many Adventists going to succumb? Do you know that the mark of the beast, we know that the mark of the beast is on the forehead or the hand. The forehead represents that they made a mental intellectual decision that will receive the mark of the beast. But the hand is the works of the hand. 
employment, the cares of this life, the riches. We want that money. And when the rubber hits the road, will we be willing to give up our house in the hill for keeping the Sabbath? We'll be willing to let go of our conveniences of, of Wi-Fi, Internet, of, of all the nice clothes that we have. We as Americans are materially blessed, but are we willing to let go of the cares of this life? Because inspiration says that every earthly provision will be cut off. Or will we be like Judas, holding on and cherishing the cares of his life? Money. Now, when Judas came in Gethsemane, there were also a great multitude of priests and elders present. Who do they represent in the last days? I'm reading to you from Great Controversy, page 608, paragraph 2. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through the obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition. By uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit, they have come to view matters in nearly the same light, and when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy, popular side. Men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. When Sabbath keepers are brought before the courts to answer for their faith, these apostates are the most efficient agents of Satan to misrepresent and accuse them and by false reports and insinuations to stir up the rulers against them. You see, brothers and sisters, we should separate the man from the message. Because if we worship man, if we look at man, you know, it's interesting. Do you know that we as Seventh-day Adventists have our own celebrity system? All these speakers, we follow certain speakers, right? And we worship them like, oh, we want their autograph when their, when their books are published. Friends, we need to stop that. It is God working in them. It's not the man itself. And if we continue to worship man, if we continue to say, oh, I'm going to hear this pastor preach. I love what this pastor, you know, it's okay. The pa- pastor's preaching meat in due season. But if we do not have an experience with ourselves and follow the man Christ Jesus, if we do not have our own devotional life, we are preparing for the mark of the beast by worshiping men and not worshiping God. You see, the great multitude of priests and elders represent there's going to be a time when even men of pleasing address will go against the truth. I look at the Adventist pioneers. You know one of the greatest evangelists in the Adventist church was D.M. Canwright? Canwright was so gifted and so powerful. You thought these evangelists that we enjoy in the net series are great? Canwright puts them to shame. And what did he do? You see, God is allowing men to fall, to teach us not to follow man, but to follow Jesus. And so, in this shaking hour, this multitude of priests and elders represents those unsanctified ministers with pleasing address that will choose the easy, popular side. Now, when Christ was confronted with Judas, what happened? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 49. 
Matthew 26, verse 49. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 49, And forwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and kissed him. Now notice this. Jesus already knew that Judas was to betray him. We knew that from the account where Jesus was giving the ordinances. They were partaking of the grape juice and the bread and the washing of feet. And Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him. But when Judas approached to kiss Jesus, did Jesus say, get away from me, Judas? You're not to kiss me? No, Jesus meekly, willingly allowed Judas to kiss him. Showing his love in the midst of persecution. Verse 50, and Jesus said unto him, friend, he still called him friend. Friend, wherefore art thou come? Then come they and laid hands on Jesus and took him. You know, I find it no happenstance in Proverbs 27, verse 6. The Bible says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. You see, I believe that that's a prophecy of what Judas did in Gethsemane. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of the enemy is deceitful. Yet Jesus knew that Judas was the enemy. But the Bible says to love our enemies and treat them those that despitefully use you. And he called yet Judas, although he was the biggest traitor, friend. What unconditional love. Now there was another disciple that was shaken out during this crisis hour. Who did Christ say would forsake him during this crisis hour? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 31. Matthew 26, verse 31. And the Bible says in Matthew 26, verse 31. Then saith Jesus unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered abroad. For after I am risen again, I will go after you into Galilee. Peter answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the cock crows, that thou shalt deny me thrice. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise, also said all the disciples. And so Peter says that he will be with Christ, even give up his life and be with him to the bitter end. In fact, notice what the Bible says in John chapter 18. John chapter 18. John chapter 18, verse 10. John chapter 18, verse 10. Of Peter's response. And when you're there, please say amen. amen. John chapter 18, verse 10. Here's the account where the mob has now arrested Jesus. And Peter did something to prove his loyalty. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servants and cut off his right here. The servant's name was Malchus. And so Peter manifests his loyalty 
saying that I will die at the bitter end. In fact, he tried to protect Jesus with carnal means, with a sword to protect Jesus, to cut off the servant of the high priest. I want to read to you a statement from volume 6 of the Testimonies, page 400, paragraph 3. As the trial thickens around us, both separation and unity will be seen in our ranks. Some who are now ready to take up weapons of warfare will in times of real peril make it manifest that they have not built upon the solid rock. They will yield to temptation. Those who have had great light and precious privileges but have not improved them will under one pretext or another go out from us. Not having received the love of the truth, they will be taken in the delusions of the enemy. They will give heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils and will depart from the faith. So inspiration tells us those that will take up weapons of warfare saying that I am ready for the crisis hour. I will stand by Jesus in the bitter end. I will not receive the mark of the beast. I am ready for the crisis hour. Those will be the ones like Peter who said, I will die with Jesus at the bitter end. I will have a sword and cut off the high priest's ear. Those will be shaken out. Why? They use flesh as their arm and they're not dependent on Jesus. Now, how did Peter respond when he betrayed Jesus? Notice the Bible says in Luke 22. Luke 22. Luke 22, verse 60. Luke 22, verse 60. Luke 22, verse 60, when the rubber hits the road, what knows what Peter did. Peter, the man that had the sword. Peter, the man that said that I will die with Christ in the bitter end. Knows what he did. Luke 22, verse 60, and Peter said, said, Man, I know not what thou sayest. Immediately while he yet spake the cock crew. And the Lord returned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. You see, Peter had another probationary time when he wept bitterly. But in the last days, if we betray Jesus during the time of the crisis hour, that weeping and gnashing of teeth will be too late. So friends, let us prepare now for that crisis hour. And what did the rest of the disciples do? Notice the Bible say in Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 56. Matthew 26, verse 56. What did the rest of the disciples do? Matthew 26, verse 56, the Bible says, But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Remember, in volume 2 of the Testimonies, it said that the sleeping disciples represent the sleeping church. Now we see here that all of God's church forsook him and fled Jesus during the crisis hour. Does that mean that every one of the believers of the Seventh-day Adventist Church will be shaken out during the crisis hour? Friends, I give you hope. Twelve manuscript releases, page 324, paragraph 3. The church may appear as about to fall, but it does not fall. 
you see, when the disciples forsook Christ and left, the church appeared that it was about to fall. But inspiration says in the last days, although it may appear about to fall in the last days, it does not fall. It remains while the sinners in Zion will be sifted out, the chaff separated from the precious wheat. This is a terrible ordeal, but nevertheless, it must take place. None but those who have been found overcoming by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony will be found with the loyal and true, without spot or stain of sin, without guile in their mouths. We must be divested of our self-righteousness and arrayed with the righteousness of Christ. Why does Christ permit persecution? Crisis reveals character. You see, Christ's object lessons, page 412, paragraph 1 says, it is in a crisis that character is revealed. You see, it's easy to be a Christian now. But when your life is on the line, will you be so willing to be bold about the Sabbath truth? When you're about to lose your job, are you willing to say that I am still Seventh-day Adventist, I'm not going to receive the mark of the beast and worship on Sunday and, and, and do things on, uh, on Saturday to compromise my belief? You see, persecution reveals who we truly are. And so, we are going to come upon a time where many will be shaken out through persecution. In fact, Psalms 55 verse 12, the 55 division of Psalms verse 12, the Bible says, For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it, Neither was it he that hated me, that did magnify himself against me, that I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man, thine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked unto the house of God in company. But friends, although we may endure betrayal and persecution, like Jesus we must have that spirit a willingly, submissively able to allow our persecutors to kiss us in betrayal. Amen. Will we be like Jesus? Will we follow the Lamb wherever He goeth? John chapter 1, verse 11, the Bible says about Jesus, He came unto His own, and His own received Him, not. You see, right now, Christianity is a popular. It's in popular culture. It's cool to be Christian. We see rock stars with promise rings saying that I'm a Christian. We have NFL football players after the game gathering together in the 50-yard line praying. It's popular to be Christian. But when the rubber hits the road, who will be the true Christian? That is why God is permitting this crisis hour. Now, what will God's people endure here in the last days? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 9. You see, when this crisis happens, what will be the test of God's people? Matthew 24, verse 9. Knows the words of Jesus. Here, Jesus, according to Matthew 24, verse 3, the disciples came privately to Jesus, asking him about 
his coming and the signs of the end. And Jesus described earthquakes in diverse places, pestilence, nations rising against kingdom. And notice what he says in verse 9. The Bible says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another. And many false prophets and shall rise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity, or in other words, iniquity means lawlessness in the original, and because the iniquity or lawlessness shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. So in this period of great lawlessness, in this period of great sin and iniquity, in this period of persecution, the question is, will your love endure to the end? Will your love for Jesus endure to the end during the time of great pressure and persecution? For verse 13 says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Now what is to endure to the end? Contextually, we know in verse 12, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. Therefore, what endures to the end for those to be saved are, is the love. Will that love endure to the end? You see, in John chapter 14, verse 15, the Bible says, If you love me, keep my commandments. 1 John chapter 5, verse 2 and 3 said, This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome or grievous. You see, when we love something, we will do everything we can to fulfill that love. I mean, kids do the craziest things for loving something. You know, after Michael Jackson passed away in Southern California, you know, that's where I'm from. People in an economic crisis from all the way from Europe and Asia bought plane tickets to Los Angeles to try to get into the Staples Center for his funeral. They spent almost their life savings. Some spent an exorbitant amount of money to satiate worshiping their false god. Why? Because they love Michael Jackson. You see, when we love Jesus, no matter what the enemy of souls throws at us, Amen. we will endure to the end. Amen. You see, in Last Day Events, page 173, paragraph 1, Inspiration writes, There will be a shaking of the sieve. The shaft must in time be separated from the wheat. Because iniquity abounds, the love of many waxes cold. It is the very time when the genuine will be the strongest. So Christ is looking for genuine Christians. Now, what is the great reward for those that will endure the persecution of the final crisis? We have established that the 144,000, those that come out of great tribulation, follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Jesus says that if you follow me, take up your cross. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, that Christ was an example for us, even in the suffering that we should follow in the steps. In other words, we must follow the steps of Jesus even through persecution. 
And what is the reward for us that our love remains to the end, even in the crisis hour? Notice what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10. The Bible says, Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is the reward in heaven. For so persecuted they, the prophets, which were before you. We are following the steps of the heroes of God, the heroes of faith. Every true follower of God was persecuted for what they believed. And we are just following God's stars. You see, friends, 144,000 is going to sing a special song. You see, a song is reflective of an experience. Any song, be it a worldly song or, or a secular song or a Christian song, it reflects an experience of the author. And this song only those that go through the crisis hour will sing. Notice what the Bible says in Revelation 15. Revelation 15. Revelation 15, verse 2. Revelation 15, verse 2. The Bible says in Revelation 15, verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over the image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints." So they sing the song of Moses and the Lamb. Why do they sing the song of Moses? What did Moses experience? You see, in Exodus 17, verse 4, Moses was threatened to be stoned by his own people. In Numbers chapter 12, verse 1, his own brother Aaron and his own sister Miriam slandered Moses. And in Exodus 32, Moses, as the leadership of God's church at that time, the children of Israel, the church set up a golden calf in apostasy. But what did Moses do in Exodus 32, verse 31? What was Moses' spirit in the midst of all this apostasy that was going on? See, the children of Israel were dancing and doing uncouth things. They were doing all this type of Egyptian rock and roll worship styles in God's church at that time. They arose a golden calf. But what did Moses do? And Moses returned unto the Lord and said, Oh, this people have sinned a great sin and made them the gods of gold. Yet, now if thou wilt forgive their sin, and if not, Blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book of life, out of thy book, which thou hast written. Moses was willing to die for those that were in rebellion. Are we willing to do the same? What is the experience of the Lamb? We know in John chapter 1, verse 11, he came unto his own, 
and his own received him not. God's own people were responsible for killing him when he was trying to redeem them from this world. And what's the experience of those who follow Jesus? Notice the Bible says in Matthew 10, as we bring some final points. Matthew 10, verse 17. Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak of it, shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child, and the children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And he shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth, or his love endureth to the end, connecting to Matthew 24, shall be saved. Amen. You see, brothers and sisters, Gethsemane in the original Greek means oil press. You see, when Jesus was squeezed in the midst of persecution, what pressed out was the oil fragrance of the character of God. My mentor, one of my dear mentors, gives this beautiful illustration. Whatever a sponge absorbs, when you squeeze it, that absorption of the substance comes out when you squeeze that sponge. If you put a sponge on top of orange juice and the sponge absorbs the orange juice and when you squeeze it, orange juice comes out. When you put the sponge on top of water and you squeeze it, water comes out. We are all sponges. And when persecution grips us and squeezes us, what will come out? Will it be Jesus? Will it be the image of the beast? You see, in order for us to have Jesus come out of us, we must absorb Jesus today. We must live for him today. We must watch and pray today. We must gain victories today. Absorb the gospel today because when the crisis hour comes, when the squeeze of persecution happens, what will come out? When that shaking happens, what will happen to us? Friends, Christ has given us the pattern. Christ, in his three years of ministry, healed the sick. He did medical missionary work. He preached. He, he sought. He was a problem solver. He preached the gospel and words, deeds, and actions. Today, let us absorb Jesus and his character for today, day by day, moment by moment, and that chain link of choices will determine our eternal destinies. And when the squeezing happens, let Jesus come out of our members. If that's your desire today to say, Father, today, I want to absorb your love. I want to absorb your character day by day, moment by moment, so that I could stand in the crisis hour and when the squeeze of persecution comes upon me, that 
Jesus will come out of me. The whole world will see that I am a child of God in the darkest hours of earth's history. If that's your desire, I simply ask that we kneel and ask God for that experience. Our Father and God in heaven, Father, I am unworthy to give this message, for even the simple annoyances of life oftentimes rattle me. But Father, we know that you permit annoyances and, and, and things that are, that are not to our liking, to our expectations, so that you could teach us to be content and patient. And so, Father, for that we are grateful that you have given us preparation so that when persecution squeezes us, that when we are pressed, we will have the fragrance of the oil of your character because we have been doused with the latter rain. And so, Father, today, right now, we ask that we absorb the character of Jesus. We absorb his pattern of his life so that day by day, moment by moment, whatever decision we make today, that we could stand our own personal crisis. And when we stand our own personal crisis today, we will gain that victory for today. And that victory upon victory upon victory will be a habitual victory so that we could stand in that crisis hour. Oh, Father, we need that experience. We need to behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Father, help us lest we perish. We thank you, Lord, for the merciful provisions of the pattern that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, wrote for us through his life, through the closing scenes, so that we can now follow the script that he has written for us through your power. We ask that each and every one of us do that great work with the little time that we have, that great work of reflecting the lovely character of Jesus as we should. Oh, Father, we thank thee for your mercy in this probationary hour. This we pray in Christ's name.